Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie, and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a book in your head, a manuscript ready to go, or even 200 sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer. And yes, at least once a month, I get an envelope in the mail with 200 sheets of loose leaf. It still happens. Uh, please visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. If you happen to be watching us on YouTube, please do uh, like and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Between the Covers. I'm thrilled today to be joined by three authors who have totally unleashed themselves. Our first author tonight, Eric Friedman, is the author of It's Forever Strictly Personal, and we're going to hear about the whole Strictly Personal journey, of which this is book three. J.D. Ruffin is the author of Air of Magic, and Paul Joseph, the author of Precious Cargo, following Mark Twain across the South Pacific. But our first author, Eric Friedman, and he writes that this is the conclusion of a journey through the movies during the eight year period of 1992 to 1999. While he and the rest of the world embraced blockbuster motion pictures like Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, Independence Day, Titanic, and The Matrix, it was also alternative films like A River Runs Through It, like Water for Chocolate, Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects, and Life is Beautiful that captured the attention of his adulthood and forever reminded him of the endless possibilities of cinema. Eric's personal story about the movies is forever told with great memory and affection for those who still remember when movies changed us, helped us to grow, and evolved into deep-rooted memories for all of us who loved sitting in front of the big screen and waited for the magic to unfold. Please welcome author Eric Friedman. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Oh, thrilled to have you. And you Good know, see you the again. titles, as I was mentioning them, uh, like Water for Chocolate, oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was a movie. There were some, some, some biggies. But before we talk about this book, uh, just uh, for our viewers who have not been on the journey since 1980 or 79? 75. 75 with the first book. Bring us back and tell us about the series. Absolutely. Um, all right, so... In uh, to to put it plainly, I think uh, these three books of my it's strictly personal trilogy have been twenty five years of my life. So the first book, it's strictly personal, uh, told the story of my childhood from nineteen seventy five to nineteen eighty two, and how films like uh, Jaws and Star Wars and Rocky and Superman and Saturday Night Fever uh, that period of my generation, Generation X, how it helped to evolve my childhood and not just through the love of the movies, but through life itself, through, you know, through my parents' bitter divorce, through, uh, you know, starting out as a child and slowly becoming a young man and where my place was in the world. Uh, the second book, it's still strictly personal, uh, covered the years from uh, 19... Uh, 1983 to 1991, 
So now I'm an older, I'm an, an older young man and it's the eighties and you know, the, the Brad Pack era and films like the breakfast club and the Terminator and top gun and die hard and Batman, they are further taking me down the road of life. But it's also during this period that I'm starting to slowly discover uh, the independent scene, uh, the art film and uh, the foreign film. The, a foreign subtitle film, which is an art film, I guess. So now we are into the third and final book of the trilogy. It's Forever Strictly Personal, which, as you said earlier, covers 1991 to 1999. And uh, the boy has become a man <laughs> and matured, supposedly matured, <laughs> into someone who uh, not only embraces the traditional Friday night uh, multiplex fair which is the the common blockbuster that still exists today but uh into the 90s now we're really getting into deeper into the independent scene you've got a studio like miramax that is churning them out on a regular basis and this coupled with the fact that uh during most of this time i'm living in manhattan which is which made um, accessing these films a lot easier and um, a lot more inviting. You know, didn't have to travel so far. And um, it's also during this period of the 90s that I was more or less by myself. Uh, you know, before I met my wife, got married and, you know, uh, experienced the whole uh, family uh, period of my life. So I've got a lot more, I'm, I'm doing a lot of writing during this time and I've got a lot more extra time on my hand to really experience the movies. Um, so it's, it's, it's men like Quentin Tarantino and films like Pulp Fiction at this point that are really capturing my attention. And I'm discovering, not for the first time, but I think it's really hitting me like a sledgehammer what the possibilities of good cinema are. And it goes beyond, you know, the blockbusters of Jurassic Park and, uh, you know, another diehard film and Independence Day. I'm, I'm really learning how, you know, exceptional dialogue and exceptional performances not only, of course, make great cinema, but what they're, how they're affecting me now as a young man. Um, and, you know, life is no longer through the eyes of a child. It's through a man, you know, living alone, experiencing uh, loneliness in Manhattan, which, you know, like any, you know, sitcom or rom-com is, you know, doesn't always paint a pretty picture. So um, I'm looking to the movies to continue uh, to try and express my emotions and my feelings, even as I had since I was a child. But this is also coupled with the fact that I'm doing a lot of writing and I'm writing screenplays at this time. So I'm, I'm, it, it's, I'm looking to films like uh, in 1992, Robert Altman uh, released a film called The Player. And even though I'm remembering that what I'm watching is still fiction, I'm getting a rather insightful look at the inside maneuvering of Hollywood in the um, in the screenplay department and how stories get sold. Now, how accurate this is, 
who knows? But <laughs> sometimes, you know, something if if we experience the movies through a hundred percent accuracy, I mean, I, I don't think we'd be living in the real world. But for the first time, I'm getting a taste of not only the possibilities, but the re the the fears and realities of what uh, writing for Hollywood could be like. So, um, again, I'm using the movies to experience what is happening in my own life mm -hmm. uh, through through my writing, through uh, through falling in love, mm -hmm. whether or not that person fell in love with me as well, who knows? <laughs> but um, and people have asked me, okay, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, I've been asked, why stop at only three? I, I was going to ask you the same question. There oh, you go. So I was going to stop at three. But before we get to whether there's more, because by the end of the episode, I'm really hoping to twist your arm. For okay. more. But, I, uh, I, if I could jump in. Please, Eric, please. Um, I, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan myself. Um, little older and uh, I know many of the movies that you've mentioned um, I saw them though not as a New Yorker but mm -hmm. what I remember from my childhood and seeing movies are also the physical theaters mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah that I saw them so uh, the Beacon Theater on uh, on Broadway before it became sort of a, a multi-venue concert hall yeah and uh, a little bit further uptown the New Yorker Theater mm -hmm. I remember that which uh, played only old movies, you know, from the 20s and, and 30s, even mm -hmm. um, silent movies. Um, so uh, I, I find it, it's very interesting, you talk about your personal biography in the context of the movies, you know, that you're, that you're looking at. And, and another layer of that for me would be the, the places I looked at, I, I saw them. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. I've, always had a thick, I've always had a thick memory myself for where I saw uh, certain films and I mean by by profession I'm an architect so I mean these movie theaters even as architecture it, it's sad but they are a dying breed I mean they've yeah. been replaced by amusement park type multiplexes mm -hmm. which offer nothing uh, nothing personal nothing uh, no, no nothing I mean it's just right, right. it's just these boxes with with screens in them there's no in my opinion, there's no true experience to them. Um, you're, you're so but, right. Uh, yeah. The beautiful Eric, I saw um, Star Wars in the RKO Keith Theater. I remember that. Oh, now I that's remember the that. place to see Star Wars with the I, um, stars across the ceiling and everything. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's part of. I have part of what I write about, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll give a good example is not only the movies I saw, but if it applies, where I saw them. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the uh, Roberto Benigni film, Life is Beautiful. Mm -hmm. That was my uh, wife, that, my wife, that was our first date. Mm -hmm. And we saw it at the Paris Theater, which is right next to the Plaza Hotel. And I think it's still open. Uh, I believe it's owned by Netflix now or was recently. But this is one of the few remaining, A, single screen theaters left in, in Manhattan, if not the entire tri-state area. But it's, uh, I mean, you go inside, at least the last time I was there, it's a lovely architectural setting. It's fully carpeted and you, you take in the experience. And because it's a single screen, it's bigger. 
So, I mean, not only did I take in the experience because a, it was the first date with the woman I eventually married, but also this, you know, rather legendary theater in Manhattan, which usually catered only to art films and foreign films. So, so let's just say if the, even if the date hadn't worked out, (laughs) at least at the absolute minimum, I I could have said I had a great night at the movies seeing this extraordinary Italian film and uh, th- that kind of strictly personal memory would never leave me and it has never left me and uh, it's, it's in the book. <laughs> well, I, I adore and I, if, you, if you ever feel your ears ringing from afar, it's, it's me telling want to want to be authors and want to be memoirists how this is a wonderful way not to just do it through the movies, but to pick something mm-hmm. that you're you're telling your life story in a context that we can all relate to. You know, it, it's we were true all because there at the movies, yeah. you know, we were all there. So so it's not we maybe we don't all get to meet you, but we all saw Star Wars. Right. But <laughs> and I mean there's movies you just see and there's movies you feel. And the ones that I can truly feel, good or bad, I mean, if they're bad, I'll eventually forget about them. But I mean, if they've really hit home somehow, I mean, that's the thing about all three of my books. The movies I chose may not necessarily be the best movies, but the most popular, but they they meant something to me personally, not just because it was a great film, because somehow it spoke to me somehow it made me think it made me contemplate and it it made me it even helped me to ask questions not just of the movie but of myself and if a if a film can do that i mean there are some you know there are some who feel as i do about music Mm. you know i mean of my generation you know we have we have our history of what, you know, certain rock albums meant to us. And I'm totally on board with that. I guess I just never felt it as strongly as some people do. I just listen and it still sounds great after all these years. But, you know, movies for me is not only it's it's a visual experience, it's a listening experience, and it's a hopefully it's a thinking experience. And now it's a fabulous reading experience. I hope so. Or- people to read your memoir and to really feel like they were sitting right there next to you. And I think it's I hope so. amazing. That's, that's my hope too. That's <laughs> absolutely my hope too. Uh, so if you are looking for a fabulous memoir that you can really, really relate to and a really interesting way of doing it, it's forever strictly personal. The third book, start there, catch up with the earlier ones. Um, whatever you do, it's going to be a treat. Our next author is also a memoirist in a very interesting way. Uh, Paul Joseph is the author of Precious Cargo. And our author writes, at the end of the 19th century, Mark Twain, wife Livy and Clara, one of his daughters, traveled around the world for a year. Twain was on a lecture tour and his experiences were later captured in his book, Following the Equator. 100 years later, author Paul Joseph spent an academic sabbatical in New Zealand while also traveling in Fiji, Australia, and Indonesia 
with his wife, Linda, and three children, Ian, Sarah, and Danny. Drawing upon Mark Twain's notebooks and letters, his children's journals, intense experiences, contrasting sets of photographs, cross-cultural encounters, and a quirky sense of humor, Precious Cargo compares the geographic and emotional journeys of the two families as they move through the same places a century apart. Please welcome author Paul Joseph. So nice. Thank to you, have Stephanie. You. Thrilled to have you. And, uh, you know, as I said about Eric's book, and it's a memoir, but, you know, people think when they write a memoir, we're just like rehashing our own story. You've got this whole side by side, Mark Twain, us kind of a thing. Uh, well, first of all, bring us back why you were there in the first place, and then why Mark Twain? Right. Well, you know, uh, Eric had a very interesting device to use movies to explore his life and his experiences um, growing up uh, um, and then maturing in, in Manhattan and New York. And I use the uh, travel lens um, with, uh, I'm, I'm an academic, I'm a sociology professor with the wonderful privilege of having a year off to go wherever I wanted. And um, after a certain exploration, we had, our children were 14, 11, and eight at the time. Um, after some thought, we, we chose uh, New Zealand and then also used that as a jumping off place to go to other places in the Pacific, as you mentioned, Stephanie, including Fiji, uh, parts of Australia, and uh, parts of Indonesia as, as well. So um, it was a very rich experience. Um, I would also say it was sometimes a challenging experience. <laughs> it, was, it was not always easy. I don't know if you travel with children for any period of time, there's going to be issues that emerge. And uh, mm -hmm. they're not always resolved by the promise of a Coca-Cola. And uh, so um, we had to work through a lot of that. Um, and uh, it was also a very rich experience. We bonded nicely as a family. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, some and, and you're still speaking to each other all these years later. That's right. A little bit stunted, stunted, but but yeah, we're still speaking with each other. I'm already seeing the film version of this book. <laughs> oh, a lot I, like uh, Eric, we have to talk about camera. Film guy, yeah. you're all about it. That's for sure. So, so Paul, you're in, and this is about thirty years ago. This trip that you yeah, tw yeah, I think it's twenty years ago exactly. Okay. Um, and and you had this amazing trip and uh, from from the ridiculous to the sublime, I'm sure. And and I'm sure in those intervening years, I can almost hear all these people saying, "Oh, you should really write a book." Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the way it happens? Well, there was some of that. You're right. There's definitely some of that. Paul, you should you should write this up. But there was also something inside me that was saying, "You have to write this book." You know, it it it. Um, I could probably ignore the friends that were encouraging me to do it, but I could not ignore the part of my my heart that was pushing me to do this. Oh. Heart more than than head, and uh, somewhere in the middle, I I somehow stumbled on the idea of coupling our story with Mark Twain's. So yeah, were you were you always a Mark Twain fan? Were you even thinking really? about? I mean, like anyone else, you know, I I read some of. <laughs> Novels, not all of his novels, 
knew a little bit of his life, Hartford, but not a lot of his life. Uh, when we were traveling in the Pacific, I also I read Following the Equator. Mm. But I didn't think of it at all as a device to help me structure my own book. Um, and then um, someone's also suggested, you know, you're not dysfunctional enough as a family to make <laughs> a compelling story. You're really, you know, and I thought about fictionalizing it. Maybe I would have an affair. My wife would have an affair. <laughs> Uh, you know, really try to lay, liven things up that way. But I I, I couldn't do that. And uh, um, just a happenstance, the idea popped into my head in a very strange location. And um, I started to read more about Twain and some of the specifics of his experiences in the year. Mm. He, he was actually in debt. He was uh, he was in debt. Uh, toward the end of his life because he chased the dream of becoming uber rich um, by promoting the development of a automated typesetter, mm. which was a good idea, but it, he backed the wrong horse. And he, he lost, in contemporary money, he lost maybe $5 million doing this. He was deep in debt. And the, the best way he could earn money quickly at that time, even though he was a well-known author, was by speaking more than by writing. So he went on around the world year speaking to her. And he took his wife and one of his three daughters with him. And uh, then uh, our, our political perspective in a general way is similar to, you know, critic of American culture and society. <laughs> But also very appreciative. Uh, I mean, Twain is a critic of the United States, but also very appreciative of, of, of the United States, too. It's folk culture, the way ordinary people talk. It is interesting, the thought of being broke. So the way to, to remedy the situation is to go on a tour around the world with your family. Yeah, he was he probably, <laughs> he was probably the most famous person in the world at that time. Yeah, you don't uh, think that somebody who is the most famous person in the world at that time would be broke? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. But, you wouldn't think that. But he he was good at spending money, and he was really good at making financial mistakes. I mean, there's a long list of faulty investments that he made. Wow. Also, a couple a couple of good ones too. You know, the self stick photo albums. When you take a well, now it's all digitized. Really? But when you, you take a photo album and you a picture and you press it onto a page at six. That was, that was him. Wow. I didn't know that. that. I, yeah. I had a house full of those. <laughs> <laughs> he tried, he tried a diet supplement called Plasmon, which was sort of a dehydrated dairy product that he thought would cure world hunger and wow. make him rich in the process. So he was a would-be inventor as well, huh? Yeah. Yeah. He, Never knew he, that. I didn't yeah. know that, and and every time now I have, because I'm a traditionalist, I have photo albums with those sticky pictures right. in my house. Right. <laughs> right. He was, he was, he, um, and, and he had a, a friend who was a, uh, an executive at Standard Oil who uh, helped him work his way out of debt. Um, he was uh, a, a very tough negotiator and how someone was a Creditor of Twain, you know, you've got to accept 
30 cents on the dollar, you're going to get nothing, you know, um, and knock it down somewhat that way. But, but um, uh, he, he advised Twain to get out of the, the typewriter business mm. and, and Twain couldn't let go of it. Um, <laughs> so, but he could earn, he could earn a lot of Mark Twain. He could earn a lot of money doing that. But anyway, you know, the, the story is, is a sort of a firsthand account of our family. Mm -hmm. And um, here and there, there are overlaps with Twain. You know, our, our encounter with animals, Twain loved animals. Uh, our encounter with religions in, in, in Indonesia, Twain was fascinated by religion, even though he was not a, a, a believer in, in religion. Um, uh, attempts to set up a home setting up a home in another country is very is a lot harder than you think it would be yeah. uh, Twain loved his home in Hartford and he had to leave it uh, very sad um, and inevitably comparison of him as a father and myself as a father and what we did when when things would go wrong which they did yeah no I love that I, I again I love I love the idea of how to tell your own story in a way that you're juxtaposing it with something. In Eric's case, the movies. In your case, the world's most famous writer and his trip. It's just so interesting. And I, I always love grabbing these tidbits because I know so many of our viewers are writers. And uh, since they are writers or wannabe writers, I certainly want them to, to hear and uh, things that are successful. For you uh later on in the show when i'm going to try to strong arm eric into another volume i'm going to you know, <laughs> try to force you on another trip in as well but um but in the meantime uh getting out of the memoir field for a moment our third author jg <laughs> ruffin is the author of air of magic definitely not a memoir Stephanie, uh, why do you say it's not a memoir i don't understand <laughs> that happened to me last week i mean <laughs> I mean, maybe it is. I I should not jump to that conclusion. Absolutely. You should see what what you see what happens to me when I try to walk the dog and get like that. What it looks like. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's my cat on a bad day. That's for sure. The uh, the bird or the woman. <laughs> oh. De definitely the bird looks a gotcha. lot. Gotcha. Okay, just checking. Uh, our author writes, as citizens begin to vanish, guardsman investigator Keelan races to save those torn from their homes and discovers a sinister pattern. Only those with magic are being taken. But to what end? In a distant kingdom, the nation is rocked when the crown princess vanishes. Rumors of distant kidnappings fuel anger and speculation. Blame is laid on their neighbor. The king's council calls for a war. Time is running out. Please welcome the author of *Air of Magic: The Kingdom War*, J.D. Ruffin. Thanks for having for joining us. Thank you, Stephanie. Glad to be here. Oh, absolutely. So you've had quite a life, then. Is that your pet bird? Uh, apparently, I guess <laughs> he was a little. He was about that big when I got him. Yeah, he was, he was tiny. <laughs> But you don't give enough bird feed, man. All hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel a little weird following two memoirs because uh, while I am in the book, <laughs> alert, uh, it is definitely not a memoir. 
<laughs> well, there's always a grain of ourselves. And since all writing is write what you know, I definitely want to hear what you know personally about this. So, so <laughs> a little bit about this and, and about the series as well. Thank you. <laughs> well, my imagination knows a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I know anything about it. Uh, I, the story behind Air of Magic is came from when I was about 14 years old uh, with some other friends. We were playing a Dungeons and Dragons game, being nerds, and uh, I I wanted to stump my friends. And so I came up with a campaign that I thought would be a really good stumper for them. And we never played it. Uh, 30 years passed, and I completely forgot about it. <laughs> uh, and it was probably three months into the pandemic, you know, that phase of the pandemic when if you left the house, you turned into a plan or something. It was <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so I was stuck at home and that story popped in my head. I have no idea why. And I decided I would go sit down and, you know, I, did, I wanted to write it down before I forgot it. Three months later, I'd written a novel completely unintentionally. And <laughs> about months. a week after that, a neighbor and her daughter came over for dinner. And the daughter was 12 at the time. And she saw that stack of paper sitting on a side table and asked if she could read it. And she's one of those crazy kids that reads everything like wow. in five seconds. Mm. Uh, so the next day, her mother called and said, she's ready for book two. Uh -huh. She wants to know what happened. <laughs> and I was I've spent the past 20 years working in the financial industry. I'd never planned to write. I mean, who wants to be an author? That's crazy. <laughs> I did. And uh hey, everybody on this show, so watch That's this. right. <laughs> that was the exact moment when I thought maybe there's something here. Maybe I should maybe I should look at this. And you know, the idea of being able to I've always loved fantasy books uh because they're an escape. I mean, they're as opposed to the reality of the memoirs, this is my way of escaping their reality and and just throwing myself into a world that frankly is a lot of fun. And crazy stuff happens, but I, I usually enjoy myself on the journey. Uh, and since then, I've had an opportunity to leave that corporate job, thank goodness, and uh, am writing full time. So I'm really excited to to tell the story and and continue telling other stories because that that's all we do is tell stories. And and it's a lot of fun. So so three months for the first book. Yes. Boy, you you were productive during lockdown. I mean, I know yes. <laughs> who never even got out of bed. You know, <laughs> you know so, it lasted two years, Stephanie. That's a long time to be in bed. <laughs> I, I I got out of bed, <laughs> but and and I must say, as as a publisher, a lot of books got written during pandemic, and I am loving that. Oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. Absolutely loving that. But three months for the first one and then boom, boom, boom. I mean, it, you just had turned on the spigot and it just came. Yeah. So that was uh, what, 2001, I guess, was pandemic. 2020. Sure. 2020. Sure. I, I'm on I pandemic brain and I have no idea what day it is. Um, there's 15 books now. So books? Yeah. it wasn't that long of a pandemic. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me roll this back. You wrote 15 books. Between now and the start of the pandemic? Yes. <laughs> 15 books in three years? Yes. <laughs> so, <have> no comment. <laughs> I, you just sit down and write. It's what you do. You just sit down and write. That's right. Um, how much coffee How much coffee does one consume during three <laughs> oh, years? Oh, I have an IV. When they're yeah, writing. I mean, plug it in. Yeah, I mean, drips. oh my yeah. God. 
I'm sure the takeout restaurants near you were very grateful. <laughs> oh, my. 15 books in three years. But if you think about it, if you write 2,500 to 3,000 words a day, and the novels are 80 to 100,000 words, I mean, you just do the math and you make it work. I have people doing my 20 sit-ups a day consistently. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 3,000 3, is a very productive day. I'm curious. I, I, 20 would only go for 1,000. Yeah, see, 3,000 is my minimum. If I don't do that, I feel like I haven't had a good work. 10,000 steps. Yeah. Right? But you, you have to respect that challenge to write 15 books and do your best to keep each one interesting inviting and original not to repeat yourself or to be redundant i mean if you could do that if you could if i could do that if you could do that for three books i'm impressed you could do it for 15 wait a minute he had a beta reader li living next door that's <laughs> i mean if you could do that for 15 i want to know what planet you came from and when the mother ship is taking you home we exactly. all want some of what you're drinking is what we're saying for well, sure. It's, you're making it sound like I, I i write for 14 hours a day and that is absolutely not true um I tend, I tried to do it that way, and I, I found <laughs> that I need to do it in in sprints. I need to do chunks. But of still, writing. the fact so, that it's all here. Yeah, I'll I do mean, a forty-five just, minute sprint. That's just and I, that'll get me about a thousand words. Forty-five minute sprint is a thousand words. Yeah, and then I'll take a break and go do something else, whether it's work on marketing or you know. And as an indie author, we do it all. So, you know, I'll do something to get my brain to to rest, and then I'll come back and do another sprint. And by the end of the day, if I do three or four sprints, I've hit three or four thousand words. Okay, I'm hearing a challenge here, folks. I'm hearing a challenge. Do you dictate or type? No, I type. I, I can't think in, out loud. I can't yeah, do that. Right, right. I probably could learn it, but I don't want to. No, it sounds I terrible. Can't type that fast. I type with two fingers. Well, the computer can't get my my accent, so I, you know. JD, JD, can I ask you a question? I, I see in back of you the legendary books by mm -hmm. Tolkien. Yep. I'm just curious. Uh, who are your Who are your other sci-fi author heroes? So I, it's funny you bring up the Tolkien books. Um, I hated reading as a kid. Absolutely, would never pick up a book. Abhorred it. It was awful. Why would you do that when you could go outside? That was kind of how I thought. Mm. And a friend of mine handed me that book right there which is the uh fellowship of the ring it's the first mm -hmm. of the lord of the rings books and it's in such bad shape you can see that it's uh you know i've had to tape it which anybody on here who does anything physical with books that's a terrible thing to do mm -hmm. um but i fell in love with that series like i just I, I loved the story and i lost myself and it's the first thing i ever read and actually liked mm -hmm. so i read the whole series um and since then, I mean, it's just been a passion. And I would say, you know, Brandon Sanderson's one of the big names. Uh, I love everything he writes. Joe Abercrombie is a master at describing something without even describing it. I mean, you don't even realize it, he's done it. Um, Tolkien, for as much as I love his story, he would take 10 pages to tell you the color of the bark on a tree. That's true. <laughs> and by the time you're done, you want to throw the book. <laughs> but the story is so good that you, you know, I got through that. Um, I am learning by listening to audiobooks with Joe Abercrombie that there is a much better way to describe things and mm -hmm. a way that engages the reader's mind and their imagination to fill in the picture. You just give them a little bit. 
And uh, that was a real learning curve. I wasn't good at that in the beginning. And I think a lot of new writers, you feel like you have to describe everything and you really don't. Um, but Joe is another one that I, I really enjoy. On the indie side, um, I've got a bunch of pals on that side. Michael R. Miller, Michael Webb, uh, Glenn Dahlgren. And I could go down a, a long list of, of indie writers who are doing a really good job of, of raising the bar for the indie writing game in the fantasy mm -hmm. space. Fantastic. Tell me a little bit about your series. Are, are these, is, is it 15 books in one series, multiple? Oh, no, 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 no. There's four books in the, well, four in a, in a prequel in this series. Okay. Um, and I, it is a classic good versus evil. Um, there's not really a chosen one. There's a chosen few that go different paths. Mm -hmm. um, but because it takes five books, there are several core storylines that don't meet up until the end of book one. And then it kind of weaves its way through the rest of the series. Gotcha. Um, so book one is a lot of setup uh, and, and getting you to know the, the characters in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think, again, if we're talking about the craft of writing, it's one danger area for a lot of fantasy writers is they get immersed in the world building because it's the fun part. It's what we love to do. Mm -hmm. And instead of transporting the reader, we bore them to death. Mm -hmm. And so We've got to be very careful about that. But um, the story begins with, as you read, with a kidnapping and, and a mystery. So it's kind of a, a, a murder mystery, kidnapping mystery wrapped into a fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, but as you go through that first book, you learn that that kidnapping is actually just a very small piece of a much larger plot uh, that is leading two nations that have been at peace for a thousand years toward war. Um, and so the... The core themes are, can they avoid the war? Can the kidnapped people be saved? Why are they only kidnapping people with magic? Um, is there something going on with that? Uh, and probably a handful of other questions. Those are the core questions that come out of book one that get answered in the subsequent books. Fantastic. And, and you said there's four other books in that series? There's Yeah, there's a prequel. So... Mm -hmm. The, the big bad in the book, her name is Irina. She is definitely a very bad person. Um, <laughs> you don't see her much in book one. You, you learn about her legend because she was banished a thousand years ago. Okay. And so there is a secret cult who is trying to resurrect her. And so that's part of that weaves its way into the magic piece. Um, and if she comes back, she's going to be angry and destroy things. And it's bad. Gotcha. Uh, as you know, bad people do bad things. So, so do good people. Yeah, they do in my book, too, which I said that, um, I, you know, one of the things I love about the authors that I mentioned earlier is their characters are not all good or all bad. Mm. And, and I think we've all probably read or seen on TV stories where you've got this person that is just unrealistically good or bad. Right. And somebody I, I want my characters to be realistic. I want you to feel like when you put the book down, you wish you could go have a drink with that person or you want to get to know them or you feel like you do know them yeah. uh, and they're that real from the reading. And that is a really challenge, a really hard challenge for, um, I mean, for me, and I would assume for a lot of writers, right, right. Uh, but it's the fun part because when I get a, when I get emails from readers saying that they want more of that character because they, you know, it felt like somebody, their character died when I stopped writing that book. Hmm. Um, that that tells me I did that right, and um, that's a lot of fun. 
Fantastic. Now, besides your 12 year old beta reader next door. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how it all began. I hope I hope they got a free book. Maybe oh, absolutely. They got free everything. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, tell me a little bit about process. You have these four books in one series. You have other series, yes. I assume, as well. Uh, do you write one series at a time and you stick to it? Or do you wake up one morning and you're like, well, I got to start writing a little bit of this. How does this all work out? Oh, no, I can't do that. I know no, that's that's awful. Um, if I tried to do that, I would forget plot points. And it, yeah, it wouldn't work. I have to be very focused. And um, I'm sure um, Paul and Eric had some version, and in the fantasy world, we call it your your writing Bible. Uh, and and the Bible for the series is a, a three inch binder that is overstuffed as it is with all the names. And I mean, like I can't remember the eye color of my main character because I wrote <laughs> that in chapter one of book one or whatever it was, and. I've got to be able to refer back to that so they don't do stupid look it up, yeah. issues. Right, right, exactly. Um, my editor is mean and awful and would kill me. And I hope she's watching. <laughs> Listen, well, it's it's definitely more challenging for you because writing a memoir, you don't have to keep track of characters. It's your own life. That's you know, true. You either remember it or you don't. You know? That's right. So I, my hat's off to you, being able to keep track of it all, however you do it. It's I, the Bible. You just you just yeah. refer to the book and and you have to make sure you that is the most important book I'll ever write when writing a series because it keeps me on track it keeps me uh, consistent and yeah. uh, I promise if I'm not consistent readers will point it out and usually in a review. Right. So if you don't mind my asking, JD, because I wouldn't be me if I didn't somehow think of movies. Do you have a favorite fa fantasy film of all time? Oh, I think uh, Peter um, Jackson. You got to choose did one. Lord Sorry. of the Rings. You, you, I mean, I and I know I am the going Lord back of the to Rings the trilogy. Same thing, but when when that those that series came out uh, in movie form, I cringed. Peter Jackson. And, and there are probably a lot of very faithful Tolkien fans who cringed with me because did you I was ever, terrified he was going to do a terrible job. Did you ever happen to see uh, in 1978? There was a. And there was an animated film of yes. Lord of the Rings. The you Hobbit? saw that? No, not The Hobbit. Uh, a, an animated director named Ralph Bakshi. He made, in 1978, he made the film Lord of the Rings, okay. which for reasons of his conflict with the studio, covers only the first two books. Uh, okay. But for, before, but long before Peter Jackson came along, this was the so-called definitive version of the Lord of the Rings on film. And even by today's standards, it's still a pretty impressive animated film. It, it can't compare with Peter Jackson's films, but as someone who loves the trilogy and as someone sure. who loves fantasy, I, I, it's definitely worth a look. It'll, 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 it'll take you back to that time in the late seventies when they were just, starting to you know break the boundaries of fantasy and uh blockbuster action and uh i i recommend it but uh i, I was curious and you've answered my question so yeah i'll check I'd it be out remiss if i didn't point out that new zealand was the source of it the was it, it's uh, absolutely really? i've been there and it's just the most beautiful place on the planet I mean, it's, and it's, uh the, well, it's nice like to watch fantasy. the movies and see the scenes and know that i've been there it's pretty right. neat right
That's that's just wild. Tell me something, JD. Are you writing? Um, I know you have the Bible, and the Bible gets written after you write, or at least while you're writing. While you, I'm writing, yeah. Do you, do you know? Do you know what's going to happen next, or are you one of those pantsers that just kind of sits there and lets it fly? Yeah, so I'm kind of a hybrid on that. Um, I could not plot. I, I know people who, when when you look at their plotting, their outline, you could look at chapter one and there are 15 plot points with sub points and like they have everything down to the page. It's crazy. I'm not that way. Okay. Um, I'll have one or two key things that I need to get across in a chapter. I know what the theme of the chapter is. I know if there's action that needs to happen to move the story along, I'll have that as a plot point. Okay. Uh, but I don't. I don't want an outline to handicap my creative side of my brain that I didn't know I had, by the way, when I was in finance. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, I write best, and this is going to sound insane, if I can close my eyes and see the characters acting out the scene. And it, somehow, it's just, just nuts. I just take dictation. They act it out. And it's like my subconscious is playing a reel in my head. Makes total You're sense. You're the movie. So you have a screenplay, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I make that makes total sense to me too. Totally. And yeah. it, if I can get in that zone, it just flows. Mm -hmm. It looks but like it flowed fifteen times. So. It fifteen times in three right. years. I, I know worked. where the I know where chapters are going. I know where I'm trying to get the end point for a chapter, and I absolutely know the end point and, and, throughout and, the book and and through the series. The process is so interesting to me because I. I labor and labor and labor. I, I think I went through a dozen drafts of, of my book easily. And do you do a second draft? Do you have to do a second draft? No. It just, it's done. Now, look, in fairness, I say that. that that's a terrible way to answer that. Um, I'll Once I've written it, I'll do a self-edit, and then I'll give it to my editor who does a developmental edit. And if she found hideous awful things then maybe i'll rewrite some stuff because she's i hate to admit it i always I, when i first started i really argued with her over stuff and i was that writer that an editor didn't want to have <laughs> um and i have learned she's always right yeah. she just is no, and I mean, i'm not I, saying I, that to, to put, watch this <laughs> i the reality is she's and every single significant thing she wanted to do has improved the story yeah and i think if i were coaching a, a young writer don't be stubborn listen to right. your editor they read a lot they know what right. they're talking about right uh, no no i think all that's all really good a developmental editor helped me as well but um i'll be um i'll be walking the dog you know at 9 30 10 o'clock at night and uh i'll be turning over what i wrote earlier in the day in my head and uh, oh it's much better if I go this way instead of that way, yeah. just or invert the clauses of the sentence. Um, you know, oh, here's a this word is better than that word, and I'll yeah. just jot some notes down when I come. Well, I think we and, all do that, and the yeah. next morning I will have an hour's work just inputting the changes that I did the self edit the night the night before, yeah, and and that's just. The first go around, there's just many more times when that would happen. I guess JD doesn't have time for all that because he's got, <laughs> you know, three thousand words to write that day. I mean, and and that I'm being serious. You you seem to be focused 
forward. And, you know, for so many people, it is hard. You know, yeah. we say at, when we're, we're working, we, we do when we're working with new writers, don't edit as you go. Let it pour out because right. if you start editing as you're writing, you're never going to move forward. Right. And, I mean, a bad page can be edited later, but a blank page is just going to make you crazy. Exactly. And, and JD right. would be the king of blinders on, keep moving forward. And wow, 15 books and pandemic. Yeah. So Stephanie, to that point, uh, my dad turned 90 this year and for the past 40 years, he's been saying, I'm going to write a book about this. I've been hearing this every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every everything for 40 years. Um, and he's never written a page. Mm -hmm. And so finally, I, I was in Nashville where they live uh, for his 90th birthday. And he starts talking about, I'm going to write this book. And I just looked at him and I said, when are you going to write it? You turned 90. And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm getting my notes together. <laughs> and I said, do you want to know the most important thing for you to do to write your book? Sit down and type. Stop Absolutely. making excuses. Write the book. Yeah. And I know that's hard advice, especially from a son to his 90-year-old dad. Um, but, I mean, it's the reality. The, 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 the phrase writer's write actually means something. We have to sit down right. and just do the darn writing. Sure. Yeah. No, you are absolutely right about that. And, uh, you know, I always cite the statistic at a book expo fair that 90% of the world wants to write a book. 90%. That means like most of the people you cross. And I believe that's true because when they hear what I do, everyone's oh, I, I want to write a book. I have, I started a book, everybody, but you're doing it. And it's one of those just do it things. I mean, the three of you honestly have you know reached mount everest as far as you know 90 percent of the population wants to do this and they haven't and you have and that is so huge and that's why you know e even though um paul and eric obviously have done this multiple times your your prolificness is just you know quite legendary at this point here <laughs> and um and inspirational and i love that you said that sit down in the chair and write the book yeah that's true. I mean, I, it, it, but there are, are also different styles. I mean, you have to sit in the chair. I think <laughs> I think that's right. And yes. I'm impressed by what you can do in 45 minutes. I sit in the chair for for three hours. Um, but um, I, I I just read uh, George Sanders' "A Swim in the Pond in the Rain," which is his. He he bounces off seven Russian short stories and and discusses them and discusses the writing process and his uh seminar classes of um, uh, uh graduate students who've been accepted to a writing program in syracuse and what he says he says all my students are very good writers because it's very selective and difficult to be accepted in the program but what separates the the authors the writers who are going to be published from the ones who don't publish. There are two things. One is accepting criticism, like you said, JD, you know, about your the editor, your relationship with the editor. That's absolutely true. And the second one he said is revise, revise, revise. And I'm I'm grateful to hear the experience of someone who seems to have escaped clause number two. <laughs> <laughs> but I I have not. And um uh 
I, I, you got to sit in the chair. You got to sit in the chair and write. And, yeah. But what what that hap what that means, I think, might be a little different from each person. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. And I think that you know the revise, revise, revise. I think JD does when his editor comes back with changes. But he also recognizes that he's got an audience, which is there's, there's nothing as inspiring as people who want to read the next book. Right. And, you know, if he sits there and tweaks this adjective over and over and over and over, he's got people. And, and, and that first neighbor who came over really set that seed with we're waiting for the next book. And and you know what, quite frankly, you know, in his dotage, he might look back at his books and, and tweak some sentences here and there and say, you know, I could have phrased this better, but right now there are people waiting for the next book. And that's- <laughs> Well, and from a business perspective, they're only gonna wait so long. Yes. I and there are a gajillion authors out there who are writing books that they could go to and mine will go by the wayside. Yeah. And so if I don't meet the reader expectation of a publishing schedule, because <laughs> it's set by them, not me, uh, then I'm going to lose my place in their to be read list. And, and so I how, how, often keep writing. Do, yeah. how often do you think do you, is, on that expectation, how often do, you, do your readers expect you to come out with a book? Yeah, in the fantasy genre, it's it's fairly forgiving because there are a lot of epic fantasy writers who write doorstoppers that I just I still don't understand. <clears throat> if, right. 150,000 word book that doesn't make sense to me um but they still want but i mean i six months between yeah. books on the fantasy side is probably about average yeah um some of the the larger like the george r, r. martins who writes books that are that big uh right. you know maybe he Finished. and he's a slow writer yeah you know maybe he publishes one a year and a half <laughs> and that's slow and and actually he hasn't even released that last one it's been like two no years. no he hasn't yeah. yeah. So, I, so my, I mean, it just varies. Uh, but I, you know, if you were in a uh, in a romance genre, and okay. I've got a lot of friends who write romance books, if you don't publish one a month, they go on to the other writer. Yep, that's it is, true. It is a rapid fire. Now they're only forty to sixty thousand word books. They're not a right. hundred thousand word monsters. Uh, but I mean, you've got to stay on top of it because those readers. I mean, you're going to get the emails. They're going to say to you, I've just picked up this other book. I'll wait on yours. Mm. And and that's just that as an author trying to pay the bills, it makes my heart sink. <laughs> well, thank goodness you are writing ability and creativity match the rapid release schedule because a lot <laughs> well, of I try. People, thank you. A lot of people certainly can't do that, which brings me, of course, to the question you knew I was going to ask, which is, what is next for the three of you? So, Eric, I'm going to start with you. Is there <laughs> more? Are we going to bring this up to a uh, little by little up to the current day? Is there another one? Is there a fourth book coming? There, there's a. I'm working on something now. It's an. Uh, it's another memoir, but it has virtually nothing to do with the movies. Um, my family. Uh, we own for 38 years. My family had a summer home in the Hamptons in West Hampton Beach, and um, that that was a real strong part of who I was and who I became. Uh, so it's the book is written in the style of letters to my son, mm. and it's mm. there, but they're also love letters to 
a, ho a house, a home, and an experience that really helped to shape my identity. And uh, so that's almost, almost a book of poetry in a way. So I'm trying to capture that, that feeling, that spirit with uh, not only for myself and for my son, but perhaps to anyone else who ever had a life that was on the shore and what it meant to them. Love that. Absolutely. Eric, I've got, uh, I share a cottage on the Rhode Island coast. Okay. I know, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. I mean, I had to, uh, you know, it, uh, the house was sold uh, six years ago. Mm. So I had to take some time and let, let I mean, 38 years is, is a long time to, to walk away. It's, a, it's very painful to walk away from something like that. Um, so I had to let, there were, for a long time, I didn't even want to think about it or talk about it. And I mean, for something, time does heal. And now because I've always been one to express myself through my writing, whether it's joy or pain, now the time has finally come where I want to write it down mm -hmm. and at the same time pass along something to my son who got to experience the house for himself for the first 10 years of his life. And uh, now he's 17. So I want to, it's, it's, it's another way of preserving something that was very special to me. Very for cool. a very long time. Very cool. Paul, how about you? Uh, another another big family trip? Uh, another around the world? No, my, my, ki my kids are older. They have some kids. So it'd be hard to imagine um, 15 people traveling. I mean, we had trouble. In that that would be a book. <laughs> I did something like that. That might be a book you throw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, that would be very daunting, but uh, in the back of my mind, I have um, the the possibility of a book of my wife's career as a professional whistler. Ooh. Professional what? Whistler. Whistler. A whistler. She's the uh, Linda came in third in the world um, <laughs> among the women in uh, in a whistling competition in Japan a few years ago. The things we didn't even know they competed on. Right. I mean, uh, she's an actual whistler. Yeah. So like, you know, like whistling well, whistle. Right. Right. <laughs> like she's not, allowed, not allowed to do that. Not allowed to. Uh, it's hard to make an author speechless, but you got me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if your author is speechless, then it's really been a power. This means, JD. <laughs> this means you are not allowed to write about a magic whistler in <laughs> any of your oh, books. Otherwise, Paul will come after yeah, you. This is good. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, most people have heard of whistlers, you know, when they walk down the street whistling or in the shower, but they usually go for 20 or 30 seconds, you know, and just a snatch of a tune. But uh, in the whistling competition, you have to whistle a full song, you know, for three or four minutes. Wow. And both a popular song and a classical song, and uh, it's it's it, just, it requires a lot of physical stamina Gosh. just to, to keep the, uh, the the music the notes going for that long. Well, uh, you're the first guest we've ever had on that I sat here thinking, "Gosh, I wish he would have brought his wife onto the show." <laughs> 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 Action stepping that happens all the time. I wish Linda was here talking. <laughs> I'm thinking, gosh, I, 
could book another oh, show one night. I talk for life with people saying, I wish Linda was doing this. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And JD, how about you? What is next on your agenda? So, you know, because I write a lot, I'm always in some state of a launch. Uh, so I've got a rapid launch happening with the uh, Kingdom War books, which is Air Magic is book one of Kingdom War. So that comes out on May 18th. And then book two, all of those are already written. So book two comes out on June 6th. Book three is June 20th. And then July 11th is book four. So ah. all of the marketing and fun that goes into a launch, uh, I'm doing four times in two months. It's going to be great. Oh, um, it's actually going to be great, but it's it's a lot of work, um, a lot of coordination there. Um, the series that I started uh, after the last book uh, is called Isles of Jade and Fire. So it's kind of like a Game of Thrones set in medieval Japan. Ooh. So very Asian-esque theme. I steal from some a number of other cultures, but it's primarily Japanese culture uh, and, and including Japanese mythology and, and a lot of the practices there. I used to live, uh, like I said earlier, uh, near D.C., and as I was writing this book, I had the opportunity to go talk to some people in the Japanese embassy, and I was worried. I was going in to ask, am I going to be stepping on cultural eggs by writing this? And they jumped all over it and said, we're so honored that you would write about us. And I ended up having several sessions with people in the embassy talking about different cultural references and getting things right and making sure that I knew what I was talking about. And oh, one of them proofread the book, which is crazy. <laughs> um, so it's really, that that was a fun book. So book one of that, uh, that series came out in January. So I'm starting to write book two of that one. Okay, well, I'm gonna- I, I, recommend, I recommend watching some old Akira Kurosawa films for inspiration. <laughs> I, I have a question for um, Eric uh, and Paul. I just as a as somebody in a completely different space in writing, what made you want to write memoirs, um, Eric? It sounds a little therapeutic for you. Uh, well, but from, I mean, what what's the driver behind writing memoirs? Um, well, it started. I mean, I've always had a passion for the films of my generation. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I was a film critic for my college newspaper. Um, I have a blog as well. And, but I finally, it, I guess it, it started with the blog a little bit because for each film that I'd write about, if I had a personal story to tell, I'd tell it along with my review of the film. And my blog is not just, a, it, it, the blog was about my whole film collection in alphabetical order. So it could be any genre, any time period. Um, and I finally just decided to take it to the next step. I realized I had a lot of personal stories to tell. And, you know, e even just being on Facebook and talking with other people, I was amazed at how many other people were out there who could not only remember the first time they saw one of their favorite films, but they could remember where they saw it. They could remember who they saw it with. And I'm starting to think there was some substance here. And, um, and hey, I mean, one thing leads to another. And before you know it, you're sitting in the chair <laughs> and you're, you're type, type, typing. And it's just coming out of me. It's all about sitting in the chair, isn't it, J.D.? It's all about oh, Lord, yes. sitting in the chair. Make sure it's a comfortable chair, by the way. Oh, yeah. absolutely. 
absolutely, absolutely. Because you're going to be sitting there. Oh, invest in your <sighs> rear end, please. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I do want to make sure that all of our viewers know where to find these amazing books with more to come. Um, Eric Friedman is the author of uh, our third book here. It's Forever Strictly Personal, uh, the third book in the series that you can go back decades and decades of the movies and memories. And I'm sure many of these are memories that will uh, light you up and remind you of some amazing times in your own life. Author Eric Friedman. Uh, Paul Joseph, the author of Precious Cargo, following Mark Twain across the South Pacific. I, I myself am a, uh, a travel book junkie. I love to travel and I love to read about places. I've never been to these places yet myself, but after reading this, I want to hop on that next plane. So if you too love travel and uh, exotic places and, and family fun, you'll definitely want to grab this. And then J.D. Ruffin is the author of Air of Magic, from the Kingdom War. Uh, this is about to be released, this yes. first book. And then boom, 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 there's going to be several books in a row. So uh, he writes them probably faster than you could even read them. So you can grab that whole series. But in addition to that, uh, to please visit jdruffin.com because as you've heard, there are plenty more where that came from. So you wanna catch um, all of these fabulous fantasy books and uh, get on his mailing list because he's going to be writing more and more. And hopefully all of our writers are gonna keep writing more and more. So I can't thank you enough, not just for being here and sharing your books, but really all three of you, such a huge inspiration to writers out there who wanna, who wanna get, grab that, uh, that ring themselves. So thanks so much for joining me between the covers. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, good night. <laughs>